Welcome to the official first episode of the podcast. I am Benjamin Morse. This week I talked to one of my professors at Biola University, Luke Alexson. We had a pretty good conversation. It's about an hour long. And before we get into it, I just wanted to say that uh, we often refer to what's known as the white cube. And what the white cube is, is just a fancy term for an art gallery. So if you hear us talking about the white cube, we are just referring to your standard art gallery that is white walls with works hanging on them. That terminology was popularized by Brian O'Doherty in his book Inside the White Cube, colon, The Ideology of the Gallery Space. It was released in 1986. If you simply search Inside the White Cube on Google, there is a full PDF to the book if you want to read more about some of the philosophies we are talking about in this episode. So without further ado, thanks for listening. And here is the conversation between myself and Luke Alexson. Luke, welcome to your office. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Yeah. I uh, invited you here to your office and uh, glad you made it. (laughs) Yeah. Your lockpicking skills are are second to none. (laughs) pretty disarming but that's a good interview tactic i'd say probably yeah just force my way in yep yep <laughs> thank you i appreciate yeah. that sitting in the darkness for who knows how long <laughs> before i showed up it was good it's good i mean I'm, I'm i'm ready to talk you're a professor at viola i am and uh what's like your background in art like what how did you get to become a professor at viola? sure sure yeah um I'll start at the beginning. Um, birth. Mm. Probably probably shouldn't do that. But um, I, I grew up in a rural area in uh, just sort of a farm, which led me to be kind of confused about the world itself and uh, eventually found art as a place where I could ask questions openly um, that don't necessarily have answers, which is a kind of cultural space that there are many of. So I thought... You know, once I found art, I kind of knew that that was the place I needed to occupy in my life. Um, Teaching itself is something that I more or less kind of stumbled into in in a sense where I I had no plans really to to teach until the opportunity opportunity presented itself to me. So um, I basically had a chance in Chicago to teach a couple of classes that were kind of right up my alley in terms of what I loved to do, which was uh, digital sculpture, sort of um, basically the premise of it, and this is such an art school kind of class, was taking architectural software and misusing it to create sculpture. So I started teaching classes like that, um, which was kind of terrifying at first. I sort of had that imposter syndrome that I think pretty much everybody has at the start of a of a career, walking in and you know wondering if anybody would believe me as an authority on a subject, but I uh, realized I, I loved it, and basically it's been about 14 years uh, later, I'm, I'm still doing it, and still love it. Um, but I've kind of hopped around the country a little bit, a few years in Chicago, uh, a number of years in Minnesota, and uh, Biola just, again, sort of presented itself as an option that was really compelling. and. Uh, love the uh, love that decision. Nice, yeah. So, yeah. In that little background, you brought up like two things that I actually 
kind of wanted to ask you about. Right. Um, the first being uh, the discovery of art as like a place to like ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, how old were you when you feel like you like began thinking about that? I was nineteen. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I had always sort of done art, but I also never had any training, so it mm-hmm. was all these sort of speculative things I was doing um, on the farm alone. Sure. <laughs> uh, didn't really do art classes. Was sort of um, warned against taking them because they weren't considered serious. Mm-hmm. So when I uh, made the decision to go to college, uh, I decided to go into engineering, partially because I, I was I'm like a first generation college student. Mm-hmm. Like nobody in my family, they were trying to actively convince me not to go uh, because okay. they didn't trust higher education <laughs> or, or schooling entirely. So um, for me, it was a way of well, I have to kind of justify this in a some kind of practical sense, but um, I realized I couldn't make major life decisions based off of appeasement or just being scared of, of being uh, completely poor, um, mm-hmm. which was the other kind of fear of yeah. of, of art. So I, I found my, myself sort of backing into art out of um, personal conviction. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, um, but yeah. Yeah. So. That's seems pretty similar to like my own journey Mm. and in like different ways I guess like I um I kind of discovered art when I came to college Mm -hmm. or like my last year of high school I kind of thought about art as an option but before that I had never even done any art Uh at all and so it's seemed like really out of left field for me to like end up making the decision to study art because I also came in as a physics major. Mm. Um, Did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I came in. I was like, uh. oh, our stories are actually pretty similar. Um, yeah. And then, so I was, I've always been like pretty mathematically minded mm-hmm. and pretty logical and straightforward in that kind of way of thinking. Um, mm-hmm. But like, and I, I enjoyed it when I came to Biola. I enjoyed taking physics classes and stuff. And, um, but it, it wasn't, anything exciting like it was like I can do this and Mm -hmm. it would be great you Mm -hmm. know I could make a career out of this pretty easily um but it wasn't challenging like it was hard but it wasn't like challenging me personally Mm -hmm. I had taken a graphic design class and decided like I would want that was fun I'd like to do that and then I was scared to join Biola's program because they were too fine arts based Mm -hmm. and I'm like I have no idea about any of those things and I don't really care to learn about them Mm -hmm. or I didn't think I would I didn't think I'd be able to stand up to anyone right Um, all these other students who've been doing art their whole lives and I'm like I have no technical skill Mm -hmm. I have no technical I can't draw I can't paint I've like never painted in my life yep but I'm going to have to take a painting class. (laughs) To this day, I've only ever had one drawing class and one painting class. Okay. (laughs) Perfect. So we're like on the same track. That gives me a little hope. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt really strange coming into that environment. Mm -hmm. um, And I felt kind of isolated in my experience. Sure. And I had no idea that that was kind of your experience too. And then I discovered what you said, like, oh, the art has like the ability to like ask questions of the world and... Um, not necessarily demand answers, mm-hmm. um, but just present the questions as a way to like explore and like think about things and 
those ideas and those philosophies began like challenging me and that's like why yeah why i love it now and that's why i'm doing this podcast (laughs) so yeah and then uh so by extension you know you you sort of realize how uh how open contemporary art at least is as a field but it's not so much a field anymore as it is a, a sort of way of approaching question asking yeah it's or, like a, it's, it's theories and mm-hmm. ideas being presented and there's no like one style that fits under contemporary art right 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 yeah, it's also different and complex and it can be painting it could be installation it could be video art and mm-hmm. 3d mm-hmm. there's so many <laughs> new exhibits out there for new technologies in art and new approaches but we, do we still call all those things like contemporary art? Have we moved past contemporary art yet? You know, that's that's uh, that's a question that people have been asking for a while. In fact, there was a pretty controversial slash uh, fun book called um, The End of Art. Mm-hmm. And then there's a follow-up called After the End of Art. <laughs> How do you follow that up? Yeah. Uh, sort of arguing that art itself has been um, swallowed up by philosophy. Mm-hmm. That... Uh, you know the the if, if you're actually trying to define the boundaries of, of contemporary art it's matching so closely with what we used to describe as philosophy that maybe art as a construct has outlived its usefulness mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm not a believer of and i don't think many people are but it's a really interesting sort of prodding at the idea or the you know the uh the conventions of contemporary art because in the end you know we, we can we can look at and i think you even referenced um in your last uh podcast some works of art that make more sense in terms of philosophical lines of inquiry than they do in traditional object making or anything that pre-1900 we would have called art. Mm-hmm. So we really are in a, in, a, in a new era in the sense that art is now more or less like a cultural field of exploration than it is a series of disciplines or, you know, visual outputs. In, and, and so, you know, you can do... Uh, gardening as contemporary art or uh-huh. podcasting as contemporary art because uh-huh. it's a, le- a, a more a matter of a question of rigor and uh, interrogation um, and then you know maybe a, a question of like you were talking about pushing boundaries and conventions but also um, you know painting is still a thing and it's still great but it also functions differently than it did before so uh-huh. we still have visual experiences um, that are amazing um, but even within painting, you have these histories and these questions that, that people are asking, um, positioning themselves against these other sort of fields of cultural activity. So in the end, it's uh, it's really more a nebulous, continuously dynamic space. And we're calling it art for lack of a better term, I think, at this point. Okay. But it has become this sort of um, colossal, ever-expanding, you know, universe that sort of swallows other universes in its wake. Yeah, so who who wrote that? That was a guy named Arthur Danto. Okay. Does he have a history of being an artist, or just philosophy? Uh, philosophy. Like, full-on okay. philosophy, and he had a little bit of a, a come-to-Jesus moment with art, um, seeing a Andy Warhol exhibit. Okay. <laughs> and he was nice. looking at these, uh, specifically these um, uh, boxes that were almost perfect replicas of uh, household consumer products of the time called the Brillo pad. Um, So he did these Brillo boxes and they were just perfect copies essentially of the boxes that you'd see in the supermarket. supermarket. Yep. So he walked into this uh, Warhol exhibit, was staring at these boxes and was like, 
did he make them or did he just bring him in here? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, got really frustrated and was sort of going through all those emotions that I think probably all of us have when confronted with that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then his sort of philosophical moment was realizing maybe it doesn't matter. Um, but mm-hmm. maybe that is that question that I asked, that experience that I just had is in fact where the art is located. Mm-hmm. So now the art has ceased to be located in the object and just happened inside of me. Mm-hmm. And as a philosopher and you know, pretty heavily densely trained and well-known philosopher at that point, um, he was challenged in an interesting way in the way that other philosophers challenge him by this you know, embodied experience of a philosophical question. Yeah, presented by an artist. Exactly. Probably an artist he didn't expect to get that from. Right, right. Because everyone at that time was kind of, or I don't know if this was when he was already regarded as a great artist, but I mean, it's always up for debate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, (laughs) at that point he had had more of a reputation as being just a uh, kind of... A comedian. A (laughs) comedian. probably the best way to put it yeah Yeah. there were there were people like jumping ship off the art world you know yeah um some of the people that uh were all at a gallery at that point and some of the painters that were in that gallery represented by that gallery just straight up walked out one of them Mm. even just walked away from his art career altogether because he was so offended by the acceptance of warhol as an artist Mm -hmm. who was that uh clifford still yeah he was like a painter yeah yeah A, a, a very serious painter. He just walked away because of Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It was, it was one of those, like, storm in, it's either me or him kind of moments. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, it seems like some of the best artists are artists who are able to ask these questions, or at least that's who captures the public eye. Um, artists who are more philosophical, maybe. Um, there's still definitely, as you said, like, painting is still a thing, and seeing raw talent mm-hmm. technical skill is still incredible right um but i think do you think the draw is more of the new factor of this is new unique because painting has been done forever and people have been good at it for a long time you know mm-hmm. um so seeing painting that is new is really exciting in like a new style or capturing a new subject but these like contemporary art philosophical studies um do those do you think because of the new factor those are what the public is kind of engaging in more it, it kind of depends on how you de- define public because yeah. the, the you know we we have a couple of publics that that the art world engages with one is the, the sort of in crowd you know the people that have been trained and have <clears throat> spent a good amount of time or their entire lives figuring out what art is, you know, sort of investing in it as this field of study in the same way that if you were to stuck with physics at a certain point, you can only talk to other people that have spent, you know, 10 years studying (laughs) physics, you know, and you can't have conversations with other people in the same way that you can have with with those people. Mm -hmm. So we have that kind of crowd that is a public. And then you have the broader public, which is increasingly engaged with art too. Um, I would say like both of these publics are expanding dramatically, and the general public, like the type that's going to go to a uh, a museum on the weekend and check out the art and not really have any kind of training in it, um, there's there's maybe a different kind of engagement that happens there. Although I, I'd say the field of contemporary art, being diverse enough um, and accessible enough um, mm-hmm. in some ways, 
um, attracts different kinds of people to different kinds of work. For example, uh, Yayoi Kusama is one of the, like not just in, in the art world, a, a famous artist, um, which really only happened in her 80s. Uh, yeah. um, she is now like internationally known by a broader public and mm -hmm. people you know go specifically to and make these pilgrimages to her pieces because they are just you know they're famous on Instagram yeah. um, everybody wants to have this kind of experience so she is uh, increasingly uh, elevated in both of those field in, in, in both of those publics mm -hmm. um, which is maybe a rare case but uh, she is really well regarded for her innovation and influence and kind of the way that she's approached her work for the inside crowd and then creates these really accessible, really beautiful, kind of profound pieces that appeal to a really broad public too. Mm -hmm. So in that sense you have, you know, somebody who is is capturing energy on both sides. But you do have artists that exist primarily in one of those sides, in one of those in one of the other sides. Yeah. And for people that are interested in you know, essentially pursuing this really intense line of inquiry, you have more of the artist artists. And for the people that you know love that maybe that kind of um, sensational or visual opulence or something that is doesn't require advanced degrees uh, to get into, yeah. you know, there's other artists that are you know still really well respected, but maybe more accessible and less, mm -hmm. less um, yeah, in crowdish. Yeah, and I think I don't know if this falls under modern art, but like the all white paintings mm -hmm. or like the all black paintings that sparks such outrage, you know, and yep. it's more of like a joke now. I don't know if people are still mad at that. Um, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Some oh, people. Yeah. Um, but it seemed like those still exist, but I don't hear as much like actual outrage of it. Is it like more of like a general acceptance that like, no, I think you'll still have people, um, showing up in a museum, uh, walking up to a, a Rothko and just raging against it, you know? Uh -huh. So some of those people that go to the museums, uh, you know, are, are still in that crowd that, okay. you know, they're looking for something interesting, exciting. They're looking for maybe more traditional talent or skill or representation or any kind of access point, and then they're confronted with the monochromatic painting, yeah. the, uh, the uh, ultimate, like, bad guy uh -huh. in uh, in modern art, you know, in terms yeah. of disrupting this relationship between art and the public. Yeah, I guess it's my bad for assuming that everyone who goes to museums understand sure, <laughs> sure. what Rothko is doing. Right, 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 right. So we've also, in class, we've been talking a lot about, like, gallery spaces, and I, like, talked about it a little bit yep. in the last podcast. That was kind of, like, what I started with. Um, and I was thinking of, like, with these white or all white paintings or all black paintings in particular, do you think the fact that they sit on huge white walls that, like, demand attention and, like, give them a place of value, do you think that is what makes people so angry, is that mm. they're held with such high regard because of the context of the gallery? Um, so, like, in contrast to that, like, if the walls were patterned or, like, colored or something and there was like a white painting and there was a bigger contrast mm -hmm. um, do you think the differences within the painting or like the skill required for those things um, would be more apparent to an audience and therefore not <laughs> require as much outrage mm. 
Possibly. I, you know, I, I think we're still talking about access, you know, um, if you have like a comfortable, you know, um, plush interior, you know, or if, if, if it's if this painting is housed in a comfortable suburban home uh, and you walk in, you're definitely going to have a different approach, you know, like Ooh. to trying to consume that image. Um, I don't think the uh, outrage is necessarily going to disappear, but maybe there's less of a sense of, of being um, excluded instantaneously by walking into the, the white gallery space. Because mm -hmm. I think that's part of it is, is it's, it is a, a sort of sacred space. It's a, it's a critical space. And if you walk in and you're confronted by something that you have no way to read, no way to access, you feel like you shouldn't even have come in the door. So I think that level of um, alienation is a pretty common feeling, and then people feel like they're getting tricked. Then they they start to you know sort of roll out the uh, emperor's new clothes metaphor because there isn't any kind of explanation. It's you know the history of like all black and all white paintings is over a hundred years old now, um, but it still is inaccessible to the vast majority of people. Even like art students, you know. You hit yeah. like your sophomore, junior year before you actually get <laughs> access to that knowledge that lets you unlock some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, most of the time. So I think it's still pretty normal to even go into art school, decide to spend your life doing this, and still feel a kind of hostility toward um, the uh, good example would be the Kazmir Malevich um, Black Square, which was probably the first black monochrome painting. Okay. But that one was, you know, before the white cube existed entirely. And kind of famously, if you see pictures of that painting, which was made in 1917, I want to say, okay. um, it was stuck up in the corner of the room, like between the wall and the ceiling, in the corner, um, wedged up, kind of where you put, I guess now, um, just like security mirrors <laughs> <laughs> or uh, security cameras. It was sort of up there. But for him at that time, in the, in the 19 teens, that was the place where you would put an icon, a religious icon. Uh, so in the Ru Russian Orthodox tradition, that was a, a sacred space. Okay. So different kind of and sacred space. he was a Russian space, artist. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Um, kind of connected in with the Russian Revolution that was happening at the same time. So mm -hmm. there was this kind of wild political urgency. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the sort of wild transformation of art that happened at the same time just sort of matched this idea that history was um, undergoing this dramatic transformation, so culture has to also. Mm -hmm. um, so where I think a lot of people would look at that and think, oh, this is just an affront to taste, or this is a, a, um, a way of mocking me, or this is a way of mocking art. It was actually a really earnest attempt at trying to imagine what art is going to look like in this new era of machines and um, in, in the minds of Russians at the time, mm -hmm. the overthrow of capitalism and this new perfect, you know, you know communist paradise that they were creating. Yeah. So, uh, like, the very first monochromatic painting is loaded with all this cultural baggage and historical baggage and was really optimistic and, like, deeply spiritual. Yeah. Um, all the things that you would not ever call, uh, expect it to be. Yeah, so where does that painting exist now? It, uh... uh if you know. I, yeah, I don't know if I know it's permanent home. It, it does kind of uh, float around the mm -hmm. world, but um, it, it pretty comfortably sits within white cubes most of the time. Yeah, so you might encounter this piece in the middle of a big white wall. Absolutely. Okay, mm -hmm. which is kind of the exact opposite of 
its original home and mm-hmm. maybe not exact, but not it, exact. It, it, it's uh, it's kind of dishonest in a way, or yeah. or it, the the lack of context is something that now we can identify as like that's kind of a problem. You I know? think it's confusing to mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. um, who don't, especially if you don't know the background. It's right. like I think a lot of outrage is just not knowing mm-hmm. what like there's probably a lot more to it than especially in this case, you know, there's exactly. the the context, the social and religious context that the painting was created in. Yeah. It's that's almost more of the work than the painting itself. Very you know? true. Very true. Um yeah. And I guess that's kind of the idea of a lot of this like philosophical contemporary and going back to Warhol, mm-hmm. um, the, his reasoning for making the identical boxes and his philosophies behind that are almost m- more of the work than just the boxes themselves. Absolutely. And then uh, there's also the sort of risk of your reputation and your career when you when you decide to like kind of go two steps past where everyone else was willing to go. Mm. And then, you know, in both of those cases, those guys were straight up vilified. Like they were villains you mm-hmm. know, in their times, which is not something you think about it, about Warhol anymore because, you know, he's more of a wall calendar that your mom might have. Yeah. You know, like he, he sort of slipped into that space pretty quickly mm-hmm. and really wanted to stay in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if you look back to the early 60s when he first sort of entered into... Uh, the contemporary art conversation he was this disruptor charlatan um Mm -hmm. you know pretty pretty much everything that you 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 could argue um the the malevich piece gives you as a feeling Mm -hmm. um warhol was giving you as a feeling and there was a kind of like detachment and coolness and i think you know going back to the idea of the black square and the in the white cube um if you as somebody of the general public walks in the blankness of that and the aloofness of it just feels pretentious, but also just kind of mean. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the like the uh, embodiment of the uh, cool intellectual that doesn't give you the time of day and mm-hmm. you know doesn't really bother to explain. You know, yeah. So the the space itself kind of embodies that. Yeah, and the reason I kind of ask the question of how would a monochromatic painting be received if it was on a different context rather than a a white background. Um, I brought that up because we talked about Warhol's wallpapers uh-huh. in class the other day, um, and he co- he would cover his gallery space in these cheaply printed wallpapers with very aggressive colors, and then put his paintings on top of that or his other prints on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, "This is really interesting," and like I would like to see other art kind of exist with that context. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like how I was thinking like oh I wonder if the outrage would be the same if there was like more of a context to grasp onto or to think about than the white walls Mm -hmm. because the white walls is almost like it encourages you to not think about the context Mm -hmm. it encourages you to just focus on the piece and I think that's probably why the white space or the white cube was invented Mm -hmm. um, or like popularized because it got rid of all distractions and um, you know you could focus on the piece but that still is super significant of a mm-hmm. context to exist in oh yeah um, it's just become such the norm that you don't really think about how the art could exist in a different context mm-hmm. and so art is either 
super important and majestic on this white space or you just, I don't know, I, at least when I go to galleries, I don't really even think about what it would look like in someone's house mm-hmm. or on top of Warhol's wallpapers, you know? Um, well, I think, you know, uh, there are there are institutions, there's, there are galleries, there are artists that are pushing back pretty hard against the inaccessibility or the, the, the muteness of the of the white gallery space, and that's been going on for since Warhol, basically, mm-hmm. um, in a variety of different ways. But also, like, museums that you might know and frequent have the full-on white wall and give you that full-on sort of autonomous, discrete object experience. But they'll also have, um, maybe invisibly at first, um, educational access points. And so that's one of the ways that um, institutions have tried to solve this problem is that when you walk in, you are um, sort of welcomed in and you're guided, maybe literally, um, to um, information on how to read this piece versus that piece versus that piece. Like you, you are actually given a massive amount of information or either on the artist or on the piece or here's this movement, um, guided tours, tour guides, whatever else that have become uh, one of the, the primary things that museums think that, that their job is. Mm-hmm. So they hire, they have entire educational departments at, at most museums um, specifically so they can mediate and avoid people walking in and feeling like they don't belong there mm-hmm. um, or that art is, is something that is exclusively for this, you know, this upper crust of, of society. And I feel like that's kind of ironic because that's kind of what the gallery does is like, oh, I'm entering into this gallery and, you know, I'm never going to have anything in here or, you know, this is the best of the best and a lot of it I still don't understand. And right. even if there's like a couple sentences on the wall about the piece, one, like no one reads all of them. <laughs> and two, it's like, I don't feel like a lot of those things are ever enough to kind of, True. especially for the Russian painting that we talked about, like, how can you include all that in a little plaque that's on there, you know? Yeah. And still convey the significance of it. Totally. Um, so. No, it's just like a little, um, it's, it's almost like a uh, placebo or something for, for actual, you know, deep communion with this art piece. Mm-hmm. You walk up to it and start to panic. It's like somebody runs up and stabs you with a little like EpiPen of information so you don't just like lose it altogether. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't actually give you the experience that you could have, you know, if you if you came in prepared or if, again if you you know spent a lot a lot of time reading and thinking and looking. Mm-hmm. Um, which is definitely the optimal experience. But yeah. you know, everybody's trying to, you know, address both of those publics and welcome and expand the, those publics. Um, which is a hard thing to do. So you have like community workshops in the uh, on the weekends, you have like kids' art classes embedded inside of these museums. You know, mm-hmm. a couple feet away from where these like uh, these paintings are, mm-hmm. um, you'll have a bunch of like eight to ten year old kids getting a lesson about that painter, making their own version of it, making art less scary, less remote, um, mm-hmm. so that that kind of like cultural literacy or even just that is a uh, viable cultural option in in popular culture or mass culture mm-hmm. um, doesn't um, is, is actually possible and is something that maybe over time over, over a period of a generation or two could actually shift public opinion away from well art is ridiculous mm-hmm. um, or Jackson Pollock I, you know I, I like art until 
you know, Jackson yeah. Pollock shows up or a lot of the other things that just kind of kill everybody's um, uh, so like, sense of ownership. like most other subjects, it takes a little bit of work to kind of <laughs> get your foot in the door, you know? But it's a weirdly American thing to think that art shouldn't ha- it shouldn't do that, you know? You should that, just get it yep. immediately. Mm-hmm. You're just there to look at it. Why should you need to read the background on any artist? And I think... That maybe that's like a pre-contemporary art mindset that mm-hmm. the public still has, mm-hmm. because, like in the impressionist era, you're just looking at pretty pictures and very good technical skill for the most part. I mean, I'm probably I'm doing I'm really bashing impressionist <laughs> art right now. I love impressionist <laughs> art. Um, yeah, but hey, so even there, um, you know, again, wall calendars, Monet coffee books, like that's been a norm for solid couple generations now mm-hmm. um and people that don't know don't have like art background and experience could love monet mm-hmm. but that is um also a a cultural training that we don't realize that we have yeah because if you look at the the way that monet was received by the american public in like 1912 the first time people saw his work there were literally um riots um <laughs> Even though there, you say there are literally riots, like how, I, it's the fact that someone is literally rioting over Monet's <laughs> painting is something that I can't even imagine. Right, right. Um, another another loved artist from that time, um, Henri Matisse. Mm-hmm. Um, one of like you know one of those people that ends up I don't know you see him on Pinterest, you see yeah. him um, in children's books. Mm-hmm. Uh, his cutouts like sort of playful, lively, you know, beautiful, fun, accessible kind of work. Um, there were some, there were some art students at my alma mater at the Art Institute of Chicago, who, after seeing Matisse's work for the first time, created a straw effigy of him, carried guns around, lit the effigy on fire, after holding a mock trial and um, convicting him of crimes against art. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was like a lot. That was. Back in the past. Is that your yeah yeah that was, so that was that was in yeah that wasn't yes. when I was there fortunately that was yeah, that was no. yeah that solid was solid ninety long, years long, before long that time ago. yeah but you know point being uh, these were people that had already made this decision like I'm an artist I'm a professional artist going to this elite art school mm-hmm. but when confronted with that kind of newness or that kind of they they were uh, offended they they automatically saw it as a threat to their values mm-hmm. and. Uh, led them to uh, almost cartoonish levels of, of um, rage and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's important to like keep that in context that, mm-hmm. you know, impressionism seems so benign now. Yeah. So accepted, but, so approachable mm-hmm. and such the standard Yep. that, yeah, like you were saying, like now, I think since we're still in the moment of contemporary art, like mm-hmm. we can't just assume that the impressionists were accepted right away either. Like, right it'll probably take some time Mm -hmm. and maybe something new will come along the next era of art and you'll look back and think how could everyone how could anyone ever dislike contemporary art you know exactly in the same way we kind of idolize warhol now as Mm -hmm. you know a great artist Mm -hmm. and how he was vilified in the past so exactly right yep so maybe this is a really natural rhythm that nobody wants to admit is a natural rhythm Mm -hmm. there there is this uh and you talked about this too like the way that you move through a gallery which is also a convention or also something that you're taught or you just sort of walk in 
say your your first time in an art museum, disoriented, don't know where you're going to go or what you're supposed to look at, how long you're supposed to stay in front of something, then you are actually, you know, in this essentially like a social construct. You know, you're you're looking at everyone else to know how to move through this space. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd say increasingly we have this, you know, this this almost like swipe through mm-hmm. kind of way of moving through space, and that's not necessarily a new thing, but it's definitely a like overwhelming cultural um, norm now. Yeah. Where you do spend like five, ten seconds, tops. Yeah, so it's not even just the white walls; it's the culture of the gallery itself. Yeah, yeah. encourages you know a quick view. Yep. You know, a quick scan of the plaque that's next to it, mm-hmm. seeing who the artist is. Yep. Seeing if you recognize the name, and then moving on to someone you do recognize, and mm-hmm. <laughs> all those things. Yeah. Yep. So it's just kind of, um, yeah, it's like your your uh, Spotify. Uh, browsing and it's just like sort of skipping until until you hit something or you know, listening to 30 seconds or uh, leaving it on in the background you know mm-hmm. like that that sort of close analysis that you're talking about is entirely possible at any time mm-hmm. uh, but I think the only thing that's stopping us isn't so much the the white cube itself as it is the way that we've managed to make it a comfortable um maybe non-confrontational space whereas mm-hmm. like the the warhol uh, wallpaper is pretty confrontational yeah you know there's especially in the in the you know late 60s when he was doing that as a gesture how disruptive that actually was not just visually but also disorienting as an idea mm-hmm. you know to return to something like so so unmodern but in such a modern way yeah the Brillo boxes too, how they're just like the replicas and the viewership of it kind of becomes like seeing if you can see his handicraft in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that style of making is, is still going on mm-hmm. and in kind of the same way, like I just read about almost the same thing in the last Art Forum magazine mm-hmm. about an artist who made like little student chalkboards like old-fashioned like mm-hmm. chalk pat or chalk you know whatever yeah like and 19th ha- century style yeah yep. yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. and having like the real ones alongside the manufactured ones and then they were talking about how like the art becomes like oh looking for the ones that she like how oh can you tell which ones she made and stuff mm-hmm. and i was reading this article and i'm like this isn't i, I don't know they're like acting like this is like a really new thing right and i was like i'm not putting myself about like people who work for art for a <laughs> magazine or anything um but i was like this i don't know i've seen dozens of people mm-hmm. do the same thing and i think they used the exact sentence in the article like the piece becomes about looking deeper than just what the object is and that's that's what's been going on for a long time and I was like I don't know I was kind of confronted by that and wondering why that's still being mm-hmm. praised for such like great artistic intelligence right right when people have been doing the manufactured objects for mm-hmm. like the past half century mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so well, one one of the things there is uh, when let's say let's we, we keep going back to the 1960s, which I think is really you know 
telling or important, that was that was sort of an era where that kind of newness that we're talking about, that, that sort of confrontational newness was where we we located a lot of meaning and, and content. And I, I think it was about advancing art in a in a in a way that now we don't quite have the same sort of urgency for. Mm-hmm. So ideas, new ideas are still exciting, but they're not necessary for for praise or for historical significance. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of the uh, maybe most um, important art that's been made over the past 25 years or so might be really old ideas brought into a new cultural or historical context or maybe reformatted or reconfigured so that it can talk about other things Mm -hmm. um so i haven't read that article in art forum but i can i can sort of you know imagine some of the ways in which that could happen where you Mm -hmm. could take a a very uh in some ways classic gesture or something that seems even archaic or or kind of quaint because this was 50 years ago Mm -hmm. you know but if it's brought into the right context now, it opens it up to these different kinds of conversations. You know, mm-hmm. uh, one you know sort of meta example would be how contemporary art has interfaced with China over the past quarter century or so, where a lot of the the work that's being made in China by contemporary artists might not have that kind of intense avant-garde feel that um, for for us with uh, Western eyes. Uh, but because it's being made in this particular um, highly intense, uh, dramatically shifting and evolving uh, kind of culture and and uh, economic context, then these ideas have a completely different sort of life to them, you okay. know, when transposed into this new context. So um, a lot of the best contemporary Chinese artists are sort of studying Western art, you know, understanding a lot of these ideas and then finding, um, almost appropriating them as ready-mades of a sort in that, in that Warholian way, but bringing them into a completely fundamentally different social, cultural, aesthetic, economic uh, climate, in which case it, it means different things mm-hmm. and it means something distinctly new um, that does matter. Yeah. So a lot of our, our you know growth in the, in the contemporary art world is now this sort of networking um, inter, inter interchange between you know sort of cultures and uh, you know that's in a broad sense kind of what or how globalization has impacted the art world. Yeah. So a lot of that growth is actually kind of lateral as opposed to this kind of forward progress idea. Yeah, and it comes like full circle, like just the idea that we love art because it's able to ask questions and not necessarily result in answers and Mm -hmm. you know you can't really fault (laughs) any of these artists for wanting to maybe explore the same questions that Warhol was asking but seeing if they can figure out a new approach to it Mm -hmm. um and you have to do the process with it for to find out that answer like maybe she maybe this artist like did those pieces and um was like I don't know maybe she found something new maybe she didn't but Mm -hmm. like that process of art making is the exploration of the idea Mm -hmm. um in the same way like these chinese artists are now exploring the questions that western art is asking and how can they ask it in their own context but still maintain like the ideas that the western audience has kind of presented Mm -hmm. um so yeah just 
full circle art asks questions and you know <laughs> loving those questions all the time yeah uh, and we actually had some Chinese guest artists here earlier this week we did <laughs> you know and we had a guy it was a school a design school in Beijing um, and one of the prof- there was a the faculty trip and one of the professors uh designed the medals for the 2008 Beijing Olympics um, and he was just giving this really quaint presentation on his school and like some of his student work and it was very simple but as I was listening I felt like extremely intimidated by mm-hmm. what they were doing over there because mm-hmm. um, it all seemed like wow this is incredible their facilities were amazing mm-hmm. um, and kind of what you said in your introduction like how can I like stand up to that and you know how do I find my own space in that um, and still belong and not worry about necessarily doing what they're doing Mm -hmm. Um, so I felt like intimidated in that way Uh, yeah did I don't know what was your experience of that (laughs) that presentation well I think that uh, the, the entire situation having been sort of unexpected and unexplained in advance was a like a wonderful uh kind of social surrealism I <laughs> yeah because we just someone was like oh there's a chinese artist lecturer we should go and we just were like all right we're going and then we showed up and heard this little talk and yeah yeah, yeah. it was very surprising <laughs> i think it, because of the lack of structure it was it felt really great because mm-hmm. um you know there was really no understanding or expectation or order to anything so mm-hmm. you know you get a bunch of people in the room everyone has a different idea of what's going to happen so because of the seams are all exposed there I it, that kind of thing is just really fun I mean uh-huh. it, it gets me kind of excited even though you know might sort of fail as a uh, um, whatever the original intent of it was mm-hmm. um, being able to see a kind of exchange between different maybe academic cultures Mm -hmm. different um, artistic cultures and then you know we have literal language translation happening in real time Mm -hmm. um, where nobody in the room knows who can understand what and uh, how much is getting lost in translation but in the end because there are these points of contact and mutual interests and mutual concerns Mm -hmm. you know you, you sort of see the world in a slightly different way um, you meet some people that, you know, have ideas or vantage points that you've never really encountered before. And that to me is, is uh, a great experience no matter what. But I think the, the intimidation factor too is, is like a bizarre moment to realize these people are here in part to study what we're doing, mm-hmm. take some lessons, take them back to a, like, heavily well-financed um, you know government-run <laughs> institution yeah um, that is trying to advance its own cultural superiority as a kind of um, advance of, of political social economic power mm-hmm. so it's an exchange but it's also in, in some sense uh, becomes a, a kind of competitive space too yeah so that I think that kind of threat that you felt isn't necessarily even just a like sort of personal. Yeah, I guess it's <laughs> um, more affect, but yeah. more subconscious, and we were divided in the room too. Like all of the bio students were on the left side, and all the 
the Chinese faculty were on the right, and mm-hmm. the translators over there, and we're over here, mm-hmm. and um, it just felt like a really like divided kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's here presenting his ideas. I didn't. I mean, they got to like hearing your guys' ideas, but it was very less formal, right? Right. So, yep. and it was set up as like, oh, this is a Chinese lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what we're going to go listen to. Mm-hmm. And so that's like kind of the expectation I had going into it. Right, right. Um, yeah. But yeah, and I think that intimidation, I, I kind of talked about it too in my own art journey here mm-hmm. at Biola and thinking like, I, I've never done art. Like all these other students are super talented, you know, and trying to find my own space in that. Yeah. Um, when you were a student, was that like, that, I feel like that's probably a really common feeling definitely, definitely. among artists. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even ones that, you know, have that that skill, yeah. you know, first time you show up and everyone in your class has that same experience, or most of them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that you're still going to be comparing yeah. yourself skill-wise, knowledge-wise against everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so everybody except for maybe two or three people in the room at any given time or having some kind of related experience to that, mm-hmm. you know, at least at first, you know, I think, you know, it, it, after, after a while you start to understand how much of a construct that is, or you're like appropriately humbled down to, okay, now we're just a bunch of like-minded people working toward professionalism. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of those hangups or a lot of those sort of self-identifying markers, like I've always been the best artist in my class or, you know, <laughs> those those things kind of dissolve and yeah because they kind of have to every artist is so different mm-hmm. once everyone has like the foundation i think the differences like come to light and at that point it's much harder to like compare right from like a small pool of students exactly um, unless you're going like full bore like we are becoming traditional figurative painters in, true. in which case you know it can be a constant that could be tough yeah then it's like a full contact sport basically yeah yeah, <laughs> that is very true. Um, so, does I think did most of your time as like a student was that when you're making, do you kind of think, okay, I'm trying to find what makes my work special, or do you kind of forget all those like outside expectations mm-hmm. and just do what you want? You know, I would say that I would say the latter, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm you know way too insecure for that to be actually true. <laughs> so, but that's I would say that's the ideal. I would I would put that on the line as that is probably one of the best ways that you can think about your your own creative process is not really caring mm-hmm. um, how to position yourself, you know, in a strategic way inside of the art world, but like sort of pursuing your own. Um, questions that really actually matter to you in, under the belief that that's eventually going to get you to a place that is distinctly yours mm-hmm. that people might not be you know uh, understanding of and maybe even hostile to at first but if you sort of commit to that and prove your point then you will actually be one of those people that shifts the conversation or adds something new to it mm-hmm. and I think if you are always thinking in terms of strategic like how do I place myself um, either within my class or within art history or within the sort of commercial gallery scene in this city or that city, mm-hmm. then you're always playing catch up or you're always um, 
in defensive mode. You're, you're, you're responding to a game someone else has decided the rules for. Yeah. And that's not necessarily, you know, a bad thing. It's just the, the, the way that you're sort of approaching art and the way that I, I have approached art. And, you know, the, the reason why it's more exciting to you than physics is because it's not a, a formula. Yeah. Um, so if you think of art in terms of its openness or its, its ability to um, produce newness or ask questions that might not have answers, then yeah. you almost have to go with that more um, pure line of inquiry in mm -hmm. order to feel, feel that sense of purpose. Yeah, that's why I, I can't understand a lot of like the famous artists that we study who devote their entire art career to like one mm. thing or mm -hmm. like one style or all my paintings are gonna be this with like differences in color and shape but mm -hmm. they're all gonna be this the guy who we talked about yesterday with the green stripes yeah yeah yeah. what's his name daniel buren daniel buren mm -hmm. you know having everything he ever makes have these same colored stripes on a white background that are the same width in every mm -hmm. context they exist in, and that's his art, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And there's, like, something special about that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I, you know... <laughs> imagining him, imagining being that person is just, like, the last thing I want to do. Like, I don't want to... I want to be able to ask questions in whatever form they come. I don't mm -hmm. want to mm -hmm. have to devote myself to, like, this one thing. But at the same time, I understand... Like, I think there's something special about trying to, you know, how can I ask this question, but I'm, but I have a bigger challenge because I have, like, a smaller pool to, like, kind of draw from. Right. And so there's, like, some great art that comes out of that, of being, like, being confined in a tight box and seeing how to break out of it. Mm -hmm. And artists who, like, are able to break out of that box and ask bigger questions with the same visual ideas, I think you know there's definitely something really special about that so yeah yeah but i can tell you're terrified yeah at that thought no that's right? why i'm doing a podcast <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm not limited to just designing on my computer mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so <laughs> right right yeah and and you know so for daniel buren you know he's arguably a painter mm -hmm. but his uh his career has taken him to all these different contexts, like outside of the white cube, inside of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think primarily his concerns are more outside uh, in the sense that he is trying to create these, his, these objects as essentially foils that allow us to see something that we wouldn't otherwise see. Mm -hmm. So if, if you look at his approach, it is like hyper confined in a visual sense, but also really open in the sense that he wants to challenge every single convention and institution that affects life. Mm -hmm. um, going back to, and this is you know kind of a, a parallel to actually the Malevich um, uh, work in Russia in the 19-teens, Buren got his start in the middle of the, basically the uh, 60s French socialists overthrow of the government <laughs> that didn't quite work out but mm -hmm. was looking for uh, a way to confront and um, upend the, the sort of conventions of post-war western materialist society mm -hmm. so his his vision was also ultimately based on this sort of depersonal conviction 
of sort of forcing people to see things that they, they that are in plain sight but they can't see you know almost becoming like a a prophet of sorts you mm-hmm. know like here like pointing to our pointing to our evils pointing to our flaws mm-hmm. um, but doing it in a way that's almost the opposite of Warhol's like destabilizing um, chaos it's like destabilizing normalcy or so yeah. hyper limited that we can walk through one of his spaces without realizing, oh, this is Daniel Varen pointing to me and saying, have you thought about how you're, you know, you're um, participating in a kind of ritualized war parade whenever you go down this certain street with all these flags above it? I'm, I'm thinking of one specific piece of his, but, you know, like you'll have be having a great time somewhere and then you'll realize, oh, this is Daniel Varen. And then suddenly there's this like, mm-hmm. you know, this critic or this critical eye looking down on you asking yeah. you to consider your role in society and how you mm-hmm. ended up here and are you just a cog in this machine and how do you sort of reclaim personal agency in an age where you are basically being told how to behave and where to go and how to have fun and how to spend your money is that like the message of all his pieces <clears throat> pretty much yeah i mean like hyper oversimplifying that um, for him uh, he's been doing that for a solid 50 years now including but, outside the the uh, Chicago Institute true yeah <laughs> yep yeah he has, a, he has a piece inside of that museum that yeah, I walked yeah. through or, pa- or up um, basically it was a staircase up, yeah. for probably six months before I realized it was there uh-huh. and it, so it totally had that moment of oh yeah yeah you're right you're right Daniel this is mm-hmm. you know I am. I'm sort of walking up this thing that makes me feel like I am a, a god amongst men, or like I, this is sort of a kingly processional up into this space. And like, what is, what is this architecture, and what is this architectural experience? Because it's kind of like a scene from a Disney princess movie. That 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 architectural moment that he chose to focus on. Yeah. Um, and I wonder what percentage of the people walking through the Chicago Institute of Art don't even realize that the steps they're walking on are part of the exhibit, you know? Um, And that you had this, like, super deep self, you know, examining moment from these staircases. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just something that art can do, and that's, like, why it's so powerful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I love that. And Mm -hmm. that's why I want people to learn more about it and now they'll know when they go to the Chicago Institute of Art to uh, look at the staircases and yeah. you know just that awareness and understanding Buren's like motivations mm-hmm. and like purposes behind it it's just super interesting and not something that I feel like people should be missing out on sure yeah absolutely but that's also part of the fun is you know when you when you start to get uh on the inside, like you're, you're now the artist, artist, you know, if, if you're, if you're somebody like Daniel Buren, it's sort of, you could, you could relate it to, um, let's say hip hop as, as, as an art form is constantly referencing, making these small, subtle references to other people or other songs or samples or, Mm -hmm. um, dropping a name that maybe 99% of its audience doesn't get. Mm-hmm. But for the 1% that is super invested in it, it sort of opens up in another dimension of meaning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's sort of um, an argument for going going past surface 
Yeah. Right, and and uh, just an argument for depth, which culturally is definitely swimming up upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's possible in pretty much any art form that's worth anything at this point, mm-hmm. uh, including podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think the moral of this podcast is uh, dig a little deeper, uh-huh. and uh, who knows what you'll find <laughs> next time you go to the art museum uh, and you see a black square. Right, right. It was once a very powerful Russian symbol. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the whole podcast to the bitter, bitter end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't avoid the silence. No, no. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. This podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as Anchor, where it is hosted. If you would like to support, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow me on Spotify or both. You know, if you can do both, why not do both? So thank you so much again for listening. I have more episode ideas in the works and can't wait to share the next one with you. All right. Bye-bye.